Y'all can be seated. Hey, uh, welcome to RUF. Thanks so much for dealing with the chaos of tonight. We basically, we were running back to back with the residence hall government, I think, and just didn't realize it, that we wouldn't have enough time to set up. So excuse us for the chaos. Thanks for bearing with us. I really do appreciate it. Um, hey, so we're doing a, a series this semester called Relationships Reimagined, and we're thinking about uh, just all kinds of relationships. We started just thinking about relationships in general, then we talked about parents, and then last week we started a two-part thing in friendship. And I want to talk about friendship again tonight. This is the last part in friendship, and then we're going to do we're going to start dating uh, next week. And so, but just just to, like, why do I want to do two weeks on friendship? And um, if you have your bulletin, this quote by Wesley Hill really is driving to this point. He says this: If you're looking at, it, he says, "However much our society might pay lip service to friendship, the fact remains that the only love it considers important, important enough to be to merit a huge public celebration, is romantic love." You remember, if you were with us last week, we said basically we used to think that community was essential and romance was optional. And in our day, we've flipped those things. We think romance is essential and community is optional. And Jesus won't let us escape scripture. And what he says to us is that community and friendship are not optional. They're absolutely essential is what it means to be made in his image. And so what I want to do tonight, last week, if you were with us, we sort of talked about the ways we underestimated and overestimated friendship. And then we talked about Jesus and how he, he's, he calls us his friends. Tonight, what I want to do is get a little bit more practical, as practical as I can get, and talk about how do we do, what does good friendship look like, and why do, we, why do we suck at it, and how does Jesus meet us in it? That's basically what we're doing tonight. So uh, the passage I want to read, it's a classic passage, uh, or maybe, maybe for you it's not a classic passage, but whenever we think friendship, most of us, um, especially if we think Old Testament, we think about David and Jonathan, because it's such a beautiful picture of friendship as it should be. So I'm just going to read this short passage, 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 5, and then we're going to dive in. So let me read it for us. Uh, As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and would not, talking about David, and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to jump right in. Let's pray first. Jesus, uh, we talked last week and thought last week about how it, um, what it means that you call us your friends. We're, we're no longer uh, just your servants. We are your friends, and you love us and love to be near us, and you like us. And uh, you don't just tolerate us. You really do enjoy us. And I pray that as we shift now to kind of think about, okay, well, how do we do friendship with each other? Uh, would you meet us here? Uh, would you meet us in the places where we know we failed? Would you... Uh, rebuke us in the places where we're proud and really don't think we need friendship? Would you uh, forgive us and help us to forgive um, in the places where we we know that we need to be forgiven and we need uh, not just uh, to forgive, um, but to commit to the way of forgiveness, which is what it means uh, to be forgiven. 
Lord, would you meet us uh, in all of our various friendships? Would you be, send your spirit and just would you apply these words to us tonight in really specific ways that we might meet you, that we might have no doubt that we've met with you tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So one of the more fascinating articles I've read in the last, I guess, maybe two years is this GQ article that came out, I think, a year and a half ago with Kobe Bryant. And it was just basically asking, Kobe's kind of a fascinating figure. I don't know if you follow NBA or not. But he's such a loner, Black Mamba, incredible player, Jordan-esque in so many ways. And yet, if you know anything about him, he, he's really, really driven, and he's really, really kind of a loner. And so the article got kind of personal and was, that was asking him along those lines, do you have any friends, basically? And here's what Bryant said. I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit long, but it's worth, I think, reflecting on. Here's what he said. He said, well, yes and no. I have friends, but being a great friend is something I will never be. I can be a good friend, but not a great friend. A great friend will call you every day and remember your birthday. I'll get, I'll get so wrapped up in my shiz. I'll never for, remember that stuff. And the people who are my friends understand this, and they usually, uh, they're usually the same way. You gravitate toward people who are like you. But the kind of relationships you see in movies, that's impossible for me. I have good relationships with players around the league. LeBron and I will text every now and then. KG and I will text every now and then. But in terms of having one of those great bonding friendships... That's something I will probably never have. And it's not some smug thing. It's a weakness. It's not like I'm saying I don't need friends because I'm so strong. It's a weakness. I want to do kind of two things as we start. Just two kind of thought, many thoughts in this as we start thinking about, okay, how do we do friendship together? Here's the first. Can you imagine Kobe saying this about romance? Like, can you imagine Kobe saying this, like, I don't need love. Like, I don't need a wife. I don't need a girl. I don't need that in my life. And yet he's saying about friendship, and there's part of us that relates to it. Because some of us sometimes think romance, again, is essential. Friendship, mm, optional. The second thing that I keep thinking as I read this is he's driving at something. Like, he admits this is part of, part of why friendship is hard is the practical reality of what it means to be great friends is really hard. Basically what Kobe's saying, if you read through the lines, is I wanted success, elite-type success. And I knew to make that happen, I couldn't have friends. And it's interesting because we don't do it at that level. I mean, I don't think. Maybe some of us are doing it at that level. I don't know. But typically, it's not that elite. But there are things that we put in front of friendship, that we sacrifice friendship on the altar of your GPA. Or you sacrifice friendship on the altar of, yeah, like your, your uh, romantic life, your dating life, which is what I talked about last week. Guys will just go savage and girls will go savage when, a, when they like the same person. You've, you've experienced that probably. And Jesus in this passage, old passage, Old Testament passage, is calling us to this friendship that really is radical, that only Christians can do, and we're going to talk about that, that is huge for you, that's huge for the kingdom. And what I want to do tonight is kind of do three things like we typically do. You know how we do. We're going to do a good friendship. I'll talk about good friendship. I'll talk about bad friendship. And then I'll talk about the best friendship. So good friendship, bad friendship, and then the best friendship. Think with me for a second about good friendship. And what I want you to think about with me is, can we learn anything from 1 Samuel 18 about the recipe or the ingredients or the elements of great friendship? And I think we can. Um, here's just a couple of context things that I think are important. David and Jonathan's relationship is incredibly unlikely. Why? Because if you, if you read the passage at all, Saul is the king, Jonathan is the heir, David is the threat. How in the world do the heir and the threat become best friends? Like, that just doesn't happen apart from Jesus. It doesn't, I mean, it's like if you've watched Game of Thrones, you know this. Like, this was the day where you did not become friends with the enemy. 
And yet here are David and Jonathan, and they don't just become friends. Y'all, they become like the best friends ever. If we were to go to the, where, where Saul, where David in 2 Samuel 1, Saul has died and Jonathan has died, and David freaking writes a song about his friendship with Jonathan. And he says, this is why people think David and Jonathan are gay. He says in that song, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. What's he saying? Like, this is, this is what I kept thinking about today. Can you imagine, like, my kids, we, we're not trying to be cool parents, but, like, we're culturally, like, we like music. We like, I'm trying to say, it, say this a nice way. Christian music is hard sometimes, and so we want our kids to listen to, like, good music. If you're offended, let's talk afterwards. So we'll listen to the radio. But can you, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, sometimes a song will come in where, like, we can't listen to, like, like I, my big thing lately is, like, I, I hate Panda is the worst song of all time. Like, my son loves that song, and I'm like, we're done with that song. I just, it's, like, no meaning to this song, except the guy that's, like, the, the background guy, that guy's incredible. But can you imagine a song, like David wrote, celebrating friendship? Just two dudes writing a song on friendship. And this is why in our, like, our culture is like, they must be gay. And Jesus is like, dude, you don't, under- you don't understand friendship. Have you ever experienced the kind of friendship that, that they're talking about? So how do they get there? Two, two main ingredients. Um, here, here's the first ingredient that you've got to understand. This is true for you, too. It's true today. The first ingredient is constancy. If, if we were to kind of put their friendship in slow-mo, how did they become these, these kind of friends? Part of what we would see is this affection that Jonathan has for David moving toward, though this is the key, moving toward commitment. Moving toward, David literally in this passage moves in with them. That doesn't really happen that much often, although you live, some of you, your roommates are friends. But part of what that's saying is they spent tons of time together. But then more than that, the strangest thing about this passage is literally Jonathan makes a covenant of friendship with David. This actually used, interestingly, in the Middle Ages, this used to be a thing. Two guys who had affection for each other, two girls who had affection for each other, would actually write a covenant of commitment of friendship to each other. And basically, it was like a, a friendship wedding where they were publicly declaring their vows to be friends for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. We will be friends. That's what Jonathan is saying. He's saying, David, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, I will be there for you. I'm going to be a constant in your life. I'm going to be like the sun, and you might orbit all over the place, but I'm going to be there for you. I'm not going anywhere. Constancy, you have commitment. Friendship can't happen. Deep friendship can't happen apart from it. Uh, there's a poem. Shel Silverstein is our favorite poet in the house, um, except when you look at his picture, and then that's just like nightmarish if you ever looked at his picture. But he wrote, the man wrote incredible poems. And my favorite poem that I read to my kids is a poem simply called Love. And the picture, you know, he did all these drawings for these poems. And the picture is just of a little girl holding up a sign that's just got a V on it. And here, the letter V, and here's how the poem goes. Ricky was L, but he's home with the flu. Lizzie, R.O., had some homework to do. Mitchell, E., probably got lost in the way. So I'm all of love that could make it today. And I love this little thing. This is like one of my rejected tattoo ideas because it just wouldn't look cool. But I love this idea where it's just part of friendship is showing up. A friend is someone who shows up. It's someone who's the V. It's someone who is two Vs showing up constantly, consistently, committedly. 
But then there's more than this because the second layer is something that I think is, but that's hard for us in a flaky, I mean, like, some of us are super, super flaky. And we can just say, like, as much as we love the intimacy that we think Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, uh, whatever it is, Instagram gives us, part of it keeps us from that committed kind of face-to-face moving toward constancy with each other. But the other thing that we, rest, that we see that's an ingredient that's huge for David and Jonathan is what we're just going to call vulnerability. Literally, it's opening yourself up to the possibility of being used, opening yourself up to the possibility of being hurt, <coughs> opening yourself up in all of your gifts and all of your personality and all of your story to the other person. This is exactly, again, if we were to put their friendship in slow-mo, this is exactly what Jonathan does with David. So he makes this covenant, but then he does something really weird. He actually begins to strip. And what I mean by that is he takes his robe, his royal robe, and he gives it to David, signifying he's now the heir. He gives his armor, signifying he's now got this task. He gives his sword, his bow. He gives everything. He shares every. He doesn't just share everything. He gives everything to David. And what he does is he makes himself incredibly vulnerable. Is he saying, David, I love you so much as a friend that I'm going to make myself vulnerable to you, and I want to be part of, of your success? The crazy thing about David and Jonathan's friendship is David would never have been David apart from Jonathan. David would never have been the man after God's own heart. David would never have been the king apart from Jonathan's vulnerability and his constancy. He's putting, in other words, here's another way to say it, he's putting their friendship above everything, even his, even his own success, even his own riches. Think about this. He's giving up his security as the son of the king for his friendship with David. He's giving up his life for his friendship with David. There's this guy I've been reading a lot lately. His name's Tim Kreider. And he wrote this book called We Learn Nothing. And he's talking about why we're afraid to do this. And he's got this theory. I just read this the other day, and I loved it, so I've got to share it. He has this theory. He calls that we all have, we all are ashamed of, this, of, of doing this with each other. We, we are terrified of peeling back the layers and letting people see us. And making ourselves vulnerable and putting, putting ourselves in, the, in a place of being hurt, putting ourselves in a place of being burned. And so he developed this theory. He talked about having a, a beer with a friend in a bar. And he said that we used to go all the time, and there was this guy who was always there who had the, most, the worst toupee that I've ever seen in my life. He was like, it was one of those toupees where, like, everyone knew it was a toupee. You know what I mean? It wasn't one of those, you know, things where it looked, oh, that's real hair. It was like one of those things clear it was a toupee. And he said... Each of us has a soul to pay. And here's what he says. He says, each of us has a soul to pay. The soul to pay is that thing about ourselves we are most deeply embarrassed by and like to think we have cunningly concealed from the world, but which is, in fact, pitifully obvious to everybody who knows us. Contemplating one's own soul to pay is not an exercise for the faint-hearted. Most of the time, other people don't even get why our soul to pay is any big deal or a cause of such evident deep shame to us. But they can tell that. They can tell that it is because of our inept, transparent efforts to cover it up, which only calls more attention to it and to our self-consciousness about it, and so they gently pretend not to notice it. Meanwhile, we're standing there with our little, rigid, sponge-like square of hair pasted in our heads, thinking, huh, got them all fooled. What's so ironic and sad about this is that the very parts of ourselves, I love this line, the very parts of ourselves that we're most ashamed of and eager to conceal are not only obvious to everyone, but are also quite often the parts of us they love best. And what I want you to see is Jonathan really is he's taking off his soul to pay. And he's saying, David, our friendship means more to me than actually my future, my riches, my romance, 
my romantic life. And as I'm talking about this kind of friendship, like, there's a lot of thoughts going on for me. One is, like, I hope you haven't given up in this kind of friendship. If you're like me, you're cynical. And you think, this sounds nice, but I'm not sure this is for me. But even if you're there, my, my hope for you is that you, you, you're at least moved by this view of what friendship could be. That, that, you still kind of, that you still long for this kind of friendship. That you still believe at some small mustard seed of faith level that this kind of friendship <laughs> is possible. But then let's talk secondly about bad friendship. If that's what good friendship, just a, a, a sketch of what it looks like, let's talk about bad friendship. And this is the part where we have given up. This is the part where if we're honest with ourselves, we have not been constant. Others have not been constant. If we're honest with ourselves, we have not risked vulnerability. And others in our lives have not risked vulnerability. If we're honest with ourselves, we've been flaky, we've been selfish, we've used people. We've seen people as obstacles to what we want or vehicles to what we want. We've manipulated. Um, so let's, let's get into the reality of friendship. And let's just dive right into the reality. Here's the reality. You're going to get lonely again. This is where you have to come to grips with the reality that, that some of you are lonely tonight. And what do you do with that loneliness? Where do you go with that loneliness? Have you given up in friendship because of that loneliness? Or are you moved to this idea that friendship is still possible, but you've got to keep putting yourself out there? This is the cliche part where everyone says it, you have to be a friend to make a friend. That whole idea where you have to put yourself out there for friendship to happen. But I don't want to take away the cliche of that because part of that's true. Part of the vulnerability of friendship is the potential of friendship. This came home to me. I was My best friend, this was about two years ago, had just moved. This is a guy I hung out with every week. And he had just moved to Mississippi. And I was thinking, like, who am I going to be friends with? And there was this guy, you know how it works, right? Where here's this guy, like, I had some affection for in the, you know, I hope you know what I mean by that. And, like, thought we could be friends. There's potential friendship here. But how are we going to move to that place where we see the potential to we're actually friends now? And I remember, you know, this is where it feels like dating a little bit. Like, becoming <laughs> friends does feel like a date. Because I remember I bought two tickets to this concert in Atlanta. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him to go with me. And I remember like showing up to the restaurant so, ner- so nervous where I'm like, <laughs> is he going to want to go with me? Like, was he gonna, is it going to be weird? We don't really know each other. We're going to be in a car for six hours. But like, as we kind of were eating, I kind of said, hey, do you like this band? He was like, I love that band. I was like, dude, would you want to come to this concert with me? And that was the beginning of a friendship. But it takes a little bit. Sometimes to move out of loneliness, we've got to put ourselves out there again. Um, Two, you're going to get hurt again. You've been hurt, you're going to get hurt again. Um, It's unavoidable. I'll never forget my counselor sitting me down and saying, the reason we're afraid of friendship is this. We've been hurt, and we know that it's inevitable. In other words, if marriage is two sinners saying I do, that's exactly what friendship is. It's two sinners entering into this relationship where we're saying, inevitably one of us is going to hurt the other. And without forgiveness, this thing isn't even possible. Let's just admit that from the outset. <clears throat> Three, you're going to feel misunderstood again. You're going to feel like your friends do not get you. In some of your, like, in some of your friendships, you're going to feel like an alien. Like you are the opposite personality, and they just don't understand you. And will you be willing to commit yourself to pushing past that part? I love this line from Iris Murdoch where she says, Love is the incredibly difficult realization that anyone other than ourselves is real. And can we admit that all of us are doing that thing? Part of why we misunderstand each other is we're, love is that incredibly difficult realization that you are real and you matter. 
just as much as me as if not more than me. Four, you're going to be or feel abandoned again. You're going to experience friendship heartbreak. You're going to experience like a friend changing and wanting nothing to do with you again. You're going you're gonna, to um, feel like someone has given up on your friendship again. And the question there is, can we get real for a second and say, sometimes we need to let those friends go. Like, you can't do friendship. Let me just get real practical for a second. Friendship takes two people being committed to that constancy and vulnerability. And if one person is not, I'm not saying you're like, we're never going to be friends ever, but it's okay to press pause on that friendship and be like, I feel like this is a little bit one-sided right now, and I love you, and I'm here, but, like, I'm not going to do this thing where I'm banging my head against a wall to be your friend and you don't care about me. It's okay to be like, I need to peace out in this for a second. Um, and then lastly, you're gonna, this is the harder one, you're going to get selfish again. This is where we, we need to look in the friendship mirror, right? And this is where we're going to turn the sermon and say, okay, we can talk all day long about the way we've been hurt by our friends. But now let's talk for a second about the way we hurt as a friend. The ways that we fail. Um, you know, there are times to do the self-care thing. Like, there are times where you should pick up Panda Express and go eat it by yourself. And then there are times, I'm not, I'm not preaching at Anna here, but there are times, too, where, like, you know that moment, at least if you're like me, you know that moment where you've got this commitment and you get to that, like, maybe an hour before, and you're like, mm, those pajama pants are looking pretty right right about now. And that panda is kind of calling my name. And I'm just going to text them real quick and be like, oh, something came up, can't do it, back out. And, that, and when you do, let's just say you, you can do that, but also your friendships are going to suffer, right? Like when you're the flaky person, you can't do the, con- if you're not constant, just know that your friendships are going to suffer. Like don't do the thing where you're like, you're not living in reality if you think you can be a flaky friend and still have friends. Um, but you're also not living in reality if you think you can be closed off from your friends and not tell them what you're thinking, what you're feeling, how you're doing. This is where every time I do this sermon in RUF, I always immediately think, like, we know guy-girl relationships, you can get friend-zoned, right? Like, we know this thing this is a real thing that exists, and we've all, you know, suffered from it at some level. But there's this weird thing in RUF sometimes where we almost, um, I don't want to say this, we, like, spiritually agree that, yeah, yeah, we know Jesus, but we're never going to talk about the most important person in our life ever. Like, we're only ever going to talk about football or the shows we're watching. or And we never talk about, like, the person who we say is, like, the core of our identity. You know, like, spiritual friend zone, where you're like, oh, we can't actually talk about Jesus. And can I just say, we sometimes, friendship, you have to embrace <coughs> the awkwardness of talking about Jesus. And I get, like, we're afraid of that in RF. You, you experienced RF a little bit tonight. We just sang a song where some of you were like, what the heck did we just sing? Like, that had no joy in it. And I'm like, yeah, of course it had no joy. RF music is sadness from inside out, where you don't understand that why she exists until you stick around long enough, and then you see her beauty and why she's here. That's another conversation. Um, but there's a, a real sense in which doing that with each other is huge. Um, so the question for you is, how do you do friendship? Are you constant? Are you flaky? Do you open up? 
Are you as closed as like a Chick-fil-A on Sunday? <laughs> are you like, nope, not talking about that. <clears throat> and this is the question. If you realize, if you have the guts to look in the friendship mirror and see the ways you failed, then the right question to ask is, who would want to be my friend? Like, who can be friends with me? And this is the beautiful part of this passage, and I'll be quick with this. The best friendship. So Jonathan loves David, and you know where I'm going. You know that, that we know that we say, if you grow up in the church, Jesus is the true and better David. Like, we kind of get, like, Jesus is the king. He's ruling over everything. It's beautiful. It's absolutely true. But do you get that Jesus is the true and better Jonathan? That what Jonathan does here is just a glimpse of what Jesus has done for you. That Jonathan made a covenant with David, but that covenant died, it, it was dead when Jonathan died. But Jesus made a covenant with you, and it's, it's still interceding based on that covenant right now as your friend. As someone who, who literally, Scripture says, lives to intercede for you. <coughs> Jonathan stripped himself of his robe. He stripped himself of his armor. And do you remember what happens to Jesus as he goes to the cross? Do you remember the scene where the soldiers strip his garments and they gamble over him? And literally Jesus, his last possession, which was his clothes, they strip from him. And Jesus, do you know, do you know this? Jesus dies naked. Part of the spectacle of the cross is Jesus is just bare naked on the cross, covered in shame, covered in spit, covered in dirt, you know, bleeding. Jesus is stripped. Why? That you might be robed. That you might have the, his righteous robes. Jesus was made himself incredibly vulnerable. Part of the cross, you know this, it's the most vulnerable position a human can put themselves in, right? The, the most vulnerable a person is, we, and this is what we do, like if you've ever played sports or even just ever like been around a fight or anything, you do this, you protect yourselves in the cross. Jesus literally puts himself in the most vulnerable position that a human can be in. Why? That you might be brought in. All the way in that you might be redeemed and covered by his blood. He's the true, he's not just the true and better David, he's the true and better Jonathan. I'll close with this. Um, there's a scene that I love from the movie The Iron Giant. It's my favorite movie, kids movie. That and Babe are both up there. And so every time I watch it, like I always try to get my kids to watch it because I just, I love it. And there's a scene toward the end, if you know the movie Iron Giant, it's always fun to do recaps on these. Just a quick recap on The Iron Giant. Giant, Falls from space, late 50s, early 60s, Soviet war, kind of crisis time. This giant falls in the woods. This boy, Hogarth, finds him, actually saves his life. They become friends. The military gets news of this iron giant walking around. They're sure it's some sort of Soviet spy, and so they're determined, this one general in particular, they're determined to find him, and not just to find him, but to destroy him. And so as the movie, like the whole movie is pacing toward this end, this great battle scene where this general gets all these troops, he brings in a nuclear missile, they found the giant. They've chased the giant into the town square, and they're going to kill him. And if you know the scene at all, the, the general, without thinking, here's the whole town. The Iron Giant's there. Hogarth is there. His family is there. The general, without thinking, fires this missile. It's a nuclear missile. It's going into the air. And the giant realizes he's looking at this missile. He realizes as it comes down on him, it's not just going to destroy him. It's going to destroy everybody. And so the giant looks at his friend and he flies off into the very upper reaches of space, and he takes the missile, and he brings it to himself, and he explodes into a million pieces. 
But right before he does it, he smiles. And he takes the missile to himself. And every time I like watch that with my kids, I'm like weeping and just say, Jesus. There's a beautiful line in Hebrews 12 that says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising his shame. And I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says, what was that joy? And that joy was friendship with you. That joy was friendship with me. That joy was him making himself vulnerable to the wrath of God, that we might be brought home, that we might be his friends. I love the way George Herbert says it. <coughs> he says, love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you call us your friends. We thank you that you um, you did this. You went to the cross that we might be brought in, that we might be forgiven, that we might be covered, that our shame might be undone and covered. And uh, Lord, it makes friendship with you possible. And I pray that um, for those of us who are your friends, would you would you bring us into the deeper joy of what that means, the freedom of that? For those of us who are not really sure what to do with you yet, would you show us the beauty of the gospel? Um, that we are so bad you had to die for us, but we're so loved you were glad to die for us. We pray these things were Christ in your name. Amen. Just stand one last time and sing with us, Jesus, I come.